I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about Barbenheimer, the biggest cinematic event in years, and surely the most memed double feature of all time. Welcome to all of our listeners, welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon, and welcome today to Zach Mabry and to Amanda. Fans of the podcast will remember Amanda from our movie draft episode last summer. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And Zach Mabry is a good friend of the Josiahs, a good Catholic Twitter personality, and it just so happens, an actor himself. So we thought that he might be able to uh, bring some good firsthand knowledge to evaluating these two films and some of the performances in them. Zach, so glad you could be here today. Thank you. Glad to be here as well. Very good. All right. So this movie event, the release, of course, of both Barbie and Oppenheimer, affectionately named by all of the internet, Barbenheimer, uh, is definitely the biggest event in the movie world, in the kind of new release movie world, since at least before the pandemic. But even going back before that, the numbers this weekend are just absolutely crazy in terms of uh, both domestically and internationally, what these two films have made. And I think for the past you know, six months or however long we've known that these movies were coming out the same day, it felt like a kind of game of chicken of, is one of these studios going to change the release date so that the two biggest, most anticipated things of the summer don't drop on the same day? But I think uh, both studios are pretty happy with the decision they made now, given that the kind of internet eventification of this double feature has made both of these things that people are actually talking about and showing up to the theaters to watch in a lot of major cities. It was impossible to get tickets this weekend to uh, see either of these films. So all of us have seen both of these movies and we thought maybe for the sake of just a light kind of fun summer episode, but also able to delve into some cool topics with regard to these movies, uh, we might yeah devote an episode of the podcast to Barbie and to Oppenheimer. Before we get into these two movies themselves, though, I wanted to share something. I don't know if either of you saw this on Instagram this week, but the Academy, um, as in the Academy Awards Academy, um, the Academy of Arts and Motion Pictures or whatever the full name for that is, shared this post of a bunch of other movies throughout history that happened to be released on the same day. Did either of you see this? No. Yes, I saw that. Well, I I saw the post and then I saw the other buzz about, you know, double features and record-breaking results and things. I thought this was kind of cool. So Catching Fire, which is one of the Hunger Games movies, right? And Frozen came out on the same day in 2013. Okay. Um, then jumping farther back, Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, came out on the same day as The Thing in 1982. The Dark Knight, speaking of Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight came out on the same day as Mamma Mia in 2008. Amazing. That has that kind of has Barbie same Oppenheimer vibe. energy. Yeah, that's true. That's a little bit of Barbenheimer vibe. Um, I think my favorite pairing of these, back in 1999 on the same day, we got The Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You. In 1988, both Die Hard and A Fish Called Wanda. In 2003, Christmas Time. Elf and Love Actually, same day. In 1995, Jumanji and Heat. And finally, in 1995, 
Toy Story, and Casino, which would be one heck of a night at the movies. So, here we are, summer 2023, and we have a film by Christopher Nolan, of course, Oppenheimer, a sort of biopic, though we can talk about that, uh, about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist most credited for the creation of the atomic bomb, and Barbie, a film by Greta Gerwig, um, that is very obviously about the doll that if we don't all know and love, we at least all know. Um, so I had thought maybe we would start with Oppenheimer and then move to Barbie in the spirit of dessert before or dinner before dessert. But Amanda rightly pointed out to me that following up a conversation about the atomic bomb with a conversation about a doll might come off a little bit crass. Um, so instead, we're going to go ahead and start with Barbie and spend a while talking about that, though we can maybe do some uh, Christopher Nolan-style cross-cutting if we want to reference Oppenheimer in this section too, um, but really save most of our Oppenheimer conversation for the second half of this podcast. So Barbie, of course, is the third feature film of Greta Gerwig, who also was an actress um, before she became a director. Um, so she's an actress you'd know from things like Frances Ha, um, and most recently from White Noise. Uh, big fan of Frances Ha, didn't understand White Noise even a little bit. Um, but her other two directorial um, films before this are Lady Bird, which was nominated for an Oscar when it came out back in 2017, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then Little Women, her adaptation of Little Women. And so now she's moved from a totally original piece in Lady Bird and kind of semi-autobiographical, I think, to an adaptation of famous novel, Little Women, um, Louisa May Alcott, yeah. And now something that is completely um, a kind of intellectual property piece with the Mattel toy from the late 1960s, Barbie. So I have seen this film and uh, shared some of my thoughts with both of you about this already. And Zach and I are on a text chain that has produced a lot of conversation about this movie this week. But Amanda, I asked you to be on this podcast last weekend, and I believe uh, you managed to sneak both of these movies in after your children's bedtime this week. So hugely yes. grateful for <laughs> you making the effort to uh, do the homework and prepare for that. And you and I have not talked since then, so I actually have no idea what you thought of this movie. So I'd kind of like to start there with just your uh, quick, immediate reaction to Barbie. Sure. And, um, you know, as a bit of background, I am a millennial who loved Barbie. I still have all my Barbies. I have a giant Rubbermaid purple plastic container with all of my childhood Barbies. I play with my <laughs> mother's childhood Barbies. Barbie came out the year my mother was born. She had tons wow. of Barbies from the 60s. Um, so I grew up playing with them. I played with them till I was like probably like 12 or 13, like far after. You still play with them, most, don't you? Most, I, <laughs> so true story, I, I was at my parents' house uh, a few weeks ago and, you know, under the guise of digging up some things for my niece, I looked through all my Barbie accessories and I still fa I found her rollerblades and they are they are so good and this is... You know, anyway, I am absolutely the target audience for this movie. 
So I was very excited for it. Um, excitement, a bit tempered. I know Urban didn't love this movie, so I I went in a bit cautious. And I was actually pretty disappointed. Um, I really wanted this to be something else. And I, I think just the plot and the world building was completely incoherent. Um, you know, it's kind of starts off with a simple concept that we have the Barbies living in Barbie land and they're tethered to sort of the play of the children who own them. So more like, you know, a typical toy movie. Um, and then, you know, Barbie starts feeling existential angst. So she has to go find her real world child or person playing with her to kind of fix that, which so far so good. It makes sense. And then, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you real quick because I meant to say this at the top and forgot. This is going to be an episode of this podcast in which we completely spoil both of these movies. So if you have not yes. seen these movies and you would like to see these movies, even though I was not really a fan of either Barbie or Oppenheimer, uh, as we will discuss, uh, I still think that if you're going to see them, you should see them without having had every turn of the movie revealed to you before you go. So turn this off and save it for afterward if you plan to see them and haven't yet. Otherwise, Amanda, go on. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I thought the way this movie was going to proceed, I thought it was going to be about how Barbie, you know, Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie brings, you know, America Ferrara's, uh, you know, character, Gloria, sort of a mom who's feeling out of touch with her very sort of aggressive uh, preteen daughter. I thought, you know, that was going to bring them together and the story was going to be about them. It's going to be about the human mother and daughter, you know, doing what Greta Gerwig has, we know, does best. She was amazing. She, with the dynamic between the mother and daughter and Lady Bird and the dynamic Amen. between the sisters and the little women, beautiful, great movies. I thought that's what she was bringing here and it was not. <laughs> And I almost think, you know, America Ferreira's like big tedious monologue at the end of the movie is making up for the fact that her character is completely and criminally underdeveloped. She is a non-entity. Suddenly all the problems that mother and daughter have are just disappear. No one ever references that again. Like, why is this girl so angry? Why does she treat her mother with contempt? Why does Gloria feel like she needs to play with a Barbie in the middle of the night and think about death? No one knows. No one knows he has a husband, I guess. I thought she was a single yeah. mom until like halfway through that, the movie. Yeah, that was bizarre. It was like he appears and he's doing Duolingo. Like, you know, could I just wanted the central drama to be the human drama and about what dolls mean to us as as girls who grew up with them, as women who have daughters, you know, maybe grandmothers who played with them. And, and that's kind of what Barbie means to me. And that was not. That was not the movie I got. And I don't know. That's that's sort of what bothered me. And, you know, in just giving her monologues about how difficult it is to be a woman does not cut it, does not make up for the fact that she is basically a completely empty character. So that's that was my reaction to to Barbie. But otherwise, it was entertaining. I thought the Kens were fantastic. They were so funny, genuinely hilarious. Everyone's giving great performances but the script is very clunky really i don't know it's it was it was very it was a mess and i was not i was not uh too happy with it yeah um so zach i would let you go next except that i think i share a lot of amanda's views and it might be good to keep hers and mine together and then let you uh lift the mood a little bit with what you thought of this afterward 
Um, so if I can just piggyback on Amanda real quick, I had a very similar reaction. Um, so Lady Bird is one of my favorite movies of the century. Um, my mom, uh, had, I was in the monastery at the time. My mom wrote me a letter and said, I just saw this movie. We've got to watch it together when you're on your next family visit. I think you're going to love it. It's incredible how much this character reminds me of you, whatever. Uh, and my mom and I, thanks be to God, never had the kind of strained relationship that Lady Bird and her mom have in that film. But it is striking the um, similarities that I had with that character. Obviously, she's a woman and I'm a man, but uh, very, very similar kind of growing up somewhere where you did not um, feel like you necessarily belonged, longing to go to school in New York, move out to the city. Um she and I were actually in the same Sondheim production our senior years of high school. Uh, Merrily, we roll along, and my mom just thought that was so funny, so she needed me to see this. And I thought what Greta Gerwig achieved in that movie with Saoirse Ronan is kind of her version, I think, of um, Scorsese's De Niro. Like, this is her um, actress she's found who really expresses herself on screen. I thought it was just absolutely marvelous. And to be honest, Little Women is not really a text that I have a relationship with or care much about. So I don't think I was ever going to love that movie. But I thought what she did with it was incredibly accomplished. And so I went into this with sort of high hopes, or at least um, I thought it could be something really great. Even though every time we'd gotten any photos leaked from the set of this thing... I felt like I was being punked and they were going to let us know, like, just kidding, we didn't make that movie this whole time. We've been making something else entirely and this was all just kind of a publicity stunt or something. No, no, they actually made the movie with the uh, outfits and rollerblades that we had seen leaked a year ago when they were filming all of this on the pier in Santa Monica. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Similar to, to you, Amanda, I think for me this movie was just trying to be too many different things. And I agree that the mother-daughter story, quote-unquote, at the heart of it, was the part that worked for me, but it actually wasn't really at the heart of it. It was kind of the emotional lodestar of the movie, but I felt like this movie was just trying to be so many different things at once. So Gerwig has now shared the movies that inspired her to make this and that she was trying to draw on, and it's an incredible list of movies that everyone should see in their life. But it's like a hundred movies that have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, it's very bizarre. So this movie at different points, right, is trying Barbie is trying to be a coming of age story. It's trying to be a family drama. It's trying to be a straight up like big studio comedy. It's trying to be a fantasy movie with a ton of world building. And I actually thought the world building was pretty funny and successful in Barbie Land. Um it's trying to be an action movie. This movie has a freaking car chase in it which is also a product placement. There is a commercial that is just that car chase for the car. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and not in a good way. Which um, is, yeah. <laughs> this is a hero's journey, right? It, the, you've got the scene with Weird Barbie holding out the stiletto and the Birkenstock, uh, Morpheus in the Matrix style, right? So it's the hero's journey of having to go out of your world and discover yourself and come back a smarter or a sadder but wiser man or whatever, uh, or woman in this case. This is also like an old school big band um, soundstage musical. The musical numbers in this are incredibly complicated and developed and mostly pretty good, but just felt like they were from a different movie. Yeah. Um, 
And then in terms of the messaging going on with this, I felt like this movie felt like it needed to be a feminist text. It needed to be a political text. It needed to be an existential text. And then on top of all of that, what is really kind of driving the whole production of this thing, right, is the fact that this is also a brand movie. Um, and we've had a lot of these this year, right? I'm not sure I'm going to be able to name all of these offhand, but Air for me was the most successful of these, at least of the ones that I saw, the movie about the um, story behind the Air Jordan. Um, but we've had Air, we've had the Red Hot uh, Cheetos, what are what are those called? Flamin' Hot Cheetos movie. We had the Blackberry movie. We had the Mario Brothers, or Super Mario Brothers movie. And when really just the existence of Apple original films is a brand, those are all <laughs> inherently brand movies. So I don't know. For me, I, I wanted this movie to kind of pick a lane. And I feel like when Gerwig talks about this, and I've heard her talk a lot about this now because the um, publicity campaign for this movie has been relentless. Um, every time she talks about it, she's talking about the kind of deliberate excess because Barbie is excess. And that's fine from a kind of right. metatextual level. But to me, the text itself just ended up being kind of unresolved and shallow, and it felt like it could have been something much more profound and interesting. But I completely agree that the big speech that America Ferreira gives ends up feeling like a kind of telling instead of showing moment just because there wasn't time to do more because you've got to throw it all in at once and then throw these Barbies into the back of the van to have this message communicated to them really quickly to break them out of their trance and whatever. Um, because it's the end of the movie and you've got a storyline with America Ferreira and her daughter. You've got a storyline with Ken. You've got a storyline with Will Ferrell that why is it in this movie? Uh, I know why it's in this movie and we'll talk about that. Uh, but And then you've got the kind of central Margot Robbie thing at the middle of it who's incredible in this but is just really un- underserved, I think, by the disparate things going on around her. And yeah, to me, it just didn't stick to landing. So I yeah. laughed several times. I was very impressed with a lot of the filmmaking. There are a lot of ideas that I thought were great, but to me, it was just way too many ideas. And if I can, I if I can just add something really quick. I think Lego Movie does this theme so much better. I think there's a hilarious, crazy, madcap Lego plot that is crazy and bonkers and excessive, but it's directly tr- like. tied to the play of children that's how kids play with legos and everyone who's played with legos as a kid as as an adult knows this is you know it feels familiar but it's still hilarious will ferrell literally plays the same character he plays president business in this in lego movie and it's much more successful there is you know an emotional human connection that is uh, you know, the overarching point is how our favorite toys bring us together, help us grow up, help us relate to our families. And that is what is missing about Barbie. It's I wanted Barbie and what I think Barbie is, is a metaphor for girlhood. And little girls have girls only sleepovers. Little girls have crazy pal- like crazy dollhouses and palaces and put the Kens in the back seat because the Kens don't fit in the front seat because that's not the way the Barbie car was made. You know, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, like little girls want everyone wearing rollerblades because those are the most awesome things that you could possibly wear in the 90s. So it's Barbie land should be a metaphor for girlhood. And there wasn't enough a connection there for that to make sense to me. I think it's maybe a very it's not sketched out enough. 
um, you know, for all the speeches about womanhood, there's nothing here about being a little girl. And not even little girl talks about being a little girl. So, you know, that's that's really what was a huge gaping hole for me in Barbie. But anyway, Lego movie is great. You should definitely watch it. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's yeah, wonderful. I completely agree. I, I felt this was trying to be in the conversation of Toy Story and the Lego movie, both of which I think are marvelous. Um, and yeah, to me, just didn't quite get there. Um, but Zach, I think you have a rosier view um, that was not an intended pun until it was almost out of my mouth and I realized it was. Um, and you were also the one person who showed up today actually wearing something halfway rosy for this podcast recording. So we thank you for your spirit. Uh, what did you think of this movie? I I really liked it. So on the surface level, and you, you guys probably agree with some of these things, I think the casting was great. Um, I mean, having the Allen dolls of Kim's, you know, one time friend that gets discontinued, there was no one else that could do that. <laughs> I mean, like I, I screamed when they, when they like first showed him, I was like, you're kidding. Cause I, I hadn't really watched a lot of previews. So when they're like, this is Alan, there's no multiples of Alan. Um, I've always not loved Kate McKinnon, but she's grown on me, but they used her perfectly in this movie. I think the casting yes. was weird. Barbie. Yeah. Yes. The one that she was played with too much, so her hair was weird, and she like was always in the splits. Um, so so accurate. I, I thought that was great, and I know it's the later topic, but that's the opposite of Oppenheimer. Like I can't, I can't like have Josh Peck pushing the nuclear button. Like that's not going to work. But anyway, the casting and the cameos and who they had in it was was just cool. And then the throw the the ways they incorporated the toy itself, like they had the midge doll, the weird pregnant barbie that like is weird like you're who wants to like you can't play with a pregnant doll like i don't you know like i don't know i guess i'm used to like action figures and they're always fighting but like you can't do that with a, a doll that's that's expecting right so and in the way that they go ahead i was just saying they're yeah i mean little girls play with pregnant dolls but yeah i think the midge i think like the association with why barbie doesn't have children why Midge the pregnant doll was weird because it assumes sort of uh, sexuality to the bar the dolls that no one wants to go there with a child's toy but yeah I mean Midge I think also was an actual friend of Barbie in the 60s like I think my mom had a Midge doll that wasn't pregnant (laughs) but yeah like the weird but he's she's weird but she's very weird it's true (laughs) yeah like that part was fun just because you know it's neat and nostalgic and reminds you of the toy they had some of the like classic outfits and some of the toys i mean there are a lot of the weird ones it's like no that was actually just straight out of mattel like they actually did have the like sugar's daddy one apparently (laughs) the surface level stuff was fun you know the musical numbers and stuff were cool um but i i actually agree with you guys about the sort of incoherence of the of the plots or plot like it will but i think that's sort of part of Barbie like we're talking about Barbie is president and also a veterinarian and she's a teacher like the doll itself doesn't have a central narrative and so you can kind of see this story had to sort of be all of that like when you watch the movie it does feel like there was a you know a google doc of ideas for this movie and everybody was allowed to edit it and then and then they made it kind of thing like because there are weird things and we talked about the speech that america Ferrera gives with all the like you know feminism 101 stuff that you get off of you know instagram stories 
And I mean, that that felt, though, kind of added in. They're like, oh, we have to do the woke stuff. Like, I didn't feel like there was a thoroughly woke structure to the story. And I mean, I'm not to disparage one. I'm assuming most of the conservative commentators who took that approach had already written their articles before they saw it. But like it, it like that was going to be their take no matter what. And I mean, it's not like you would find some sort of wholesome traditional message in it, but it, it didn't have like a thoroughly woke framing Um and I think Nina Power in Compact kind of captures that, like talks about a lot of the the ways that they sort of discuss womanhood and things don't really line up with the prevailing narratives around gender and stuff like they, I mean, you really could kind of go in any direction with it. But I definitely recognize the incoherence. I just thought that kind of fit. I mean, it's Barbie, like what were they going to do? And in a way, Barbie's more controversial than the atomic bomb. Like the people that believe, <laughs> but I mean, people believe that there's there's women that have had lifelong mental health problems because they played with Barbies and it, it made them want their bodies to look different, and they wanted it gave them like diagnosable disorders to play with this doll, or it set unrealistic expectations for them. And, and as we'll talk about in terms of the atomic bomb, unfortunately, it's actually not especially controversial. So, no, yeah, there's not there's not much debate to be had there. But um, so that has always been like with with Barbie. I felt like the movie captured it almost took the classic, you know, Barbie sets unrealistic expectations and whatnot. It almost kind of flipped it of like, I think people have unrealistic expectations of the of a doll, like a doll can't make you. I mean, I you know, I but it can't it can't like give you a disorder and it also can't cure you from a disorder you know it, it is a, a doll like you're kind of going to get out what you what you put into it like you're you animate the doll like you're the voice and, and the storyline and all that kind of stuff so um and i've always thought it was funny this is more of an aside but they always talk about how like if you made barbie six feet tall like that would be so unrealistic and, and like that's not a normal like, nobody questions like is this how we're supposed to evaluate a toy like is that is that even a reasonable metric like what about Hot Wheels? What do those look like full size? Like Flintstone bikes. Like, I don't know that that's how it's played. Like nobody ever questions like, is this even a realistic standard to put on a toy? Like if you made it larger than it is, would it look weird? Right. Like Barbie would have to walk on all fours to like, like, you know, keep that proportion or all this stuff. It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's a it's toy. It's like Barbie it's... doesn't walk, but she just like you hop along. I'm pretty sure. So it's, it's yeah, fine. that's what they got. They got pretty well in the movie. It's like she just hops down from her house. Oh my gosh. And... That, all of that stuff I thought was incredible. Yes. The scale the way that it, she goes down. Yeah, the scale is incredible. So the height of the ceilings in relation to the height of the dolls and everything is just incredible in that world. And another thing I, I heard, uh, another commentator talking about this but it's so true the way she goes down that slide first of all is exactly what it would look like for a barbie to go down a slide but second of all the amount of pilates that it would require for margot robbie to be able to pull that off staying in exactly that position is just like okay this girl is made to play this role and what she's doing both from a kind of psychological acting point of view but then also just from a physicality point of view, I mean, she embodies a Barbie doll. And I don't just mean because she's beautiful, though obviously Mar Margot Robbie is incredibly beautiful, but she seems like a living doll. 
in this movie. And the one time that I remember actually having like a complete um, like laugh out loud kind of moment in this movie was when Helen Mirren as the narrator calls out the absurdity of casting Margot Robbie in this role if you wanted Barbie to feel unpretty at some point in this movie because there's no way you can pull that off with Margot Robbie. Uh, and I thought that that was a very funny breaking of the fourth wall. But yeah, Zach, I, I wanted to go back to one thing you said that to me was the kind of behind the scenes problem with this movie, I think. And that's that this is a Google document that everyone got to edit. So obviously the script is written by Gerwig and by Noah Baumbach, who I also really, really like. And he and Gerwig are a couple um, and have been for years. Um, and so they did the script together, but they're both, what's the right way to say this? They're both so self-aware, not just of themselves, but I mean, of all the different pressures on this movie. And I think that's good up to a point, but gets away from them. So they're so self-aware that Barbie is a controversial toy and they need to confront that head on. But then they're also so self-aware that today Mattel is just run by men, even though they're making all their money off young girls. So they need to confront that head on. And then there's the whole thing about Ruth, even though the they creator. have a pretty, they have like women on their board. They have women. Like I looked up their C-suite. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's women there. <laughs> all right. It's not Will Ferrell. <laughs> I do like, I, I do like to think that companies like Mattel or toy companies have really fun cartoonish, um, corporate offices and if they don't uh, that's that's sad to me but um i just want a cartoonish corporate office if we've got to go there which i don't think we did in this movie if we've got to go there i just want it to actually be funny and this I, felt like a, it was i thought I it would have yeah. been yeah i thought it would have been cool for them you know to get to mattel barbie and ken and realize that mattel is not only about barbies but also hot wheels and have Ken's big realization be like there are awesome monster trucks and cars and Mattel is not just Barbie like that should have been like instead of doing horses as his thing which it was kind of odd because horses like girls love horses stereotypically there are horse girls <laughs> oh yeah like Barbie has horses well, Barbie cool. has Barbie has equestrian gear like Barbie loves horses so like why not just won a lot of awards yeah why not have Ken roll up in a giant like Hot Wheels car? That would have been amazing. In some of the press for it, because the you know the production company that got the rights was um, Margot Robbie's company, and she was excited about like she kind of acknowledged just the like the expectations around the movie, just because everybody already everyone knows Barbie, and people have like I said much stronger opinions about Barbie that they than I mean the atomic bomb. Like most people have a like a set view on the atomic bomb, and they don't you know. Even like as you're reading the press leading up to the movie, the journalists that were writing about it were really excited, but they sort of had to plug the fact that like Barbie is also problematic and, you know, thin or whatever. Like they, they still had to like acknowledge that, but you could tell they were really excited about the movie and how that, but they, it's like obligatory reminder that also there's problematic stuff. Right. And to me, it's just that there were so many obligatory reminders throughout. And yeah. it's like they thought that acknowledging them and showing that they were very self-aware and kind of self-deprecating about all of this made it okay um but to me at a certain point that doesn't make it okay that just makes it too many things that i'm keeping track of and like it's nice that you're winking and knowing and okay great you're also a millennial which is cool um i appreciate that 
Gerwig is someone basically our age uh, or much closer to our age than most directors working today. And I do get a lot of her references. I mean, she's pulled so many 90s uh, song uh, choices here. And yeah, just things that in all of her movies are things that are very, very familiar to us. Um, but there's a kind of millennial meta skepticism, um, cynic seeing through everything kind of thing that got a little lazy for me here. Um, and I felt like inhibited the ability of the movie to actually progress and go somewhere. I was in, I think most movies and things coming out now in the last few years and for who knows how long are going to all seem really dated because there is this like overbearing I don't know I guess you call it self-awareness like it's like all the movies everything has to sort of like mention that like the most recent Batman remake like they they have this rooftop conversation about like men with privilege and it's like this is this is going to be like the weird date stamp when you look back at movies from this time period that every movie had to like include this stuff like it was required or something like some kind of new Hayes code where you have to like say these things because it yeah like those parts will feel dated but what I was worried what I thought would happen with the movie is the trope would just be that like being beautiful and glamorous is bad and frivolous and backwards thinking and being plain and and ugly is serious and Barbie was going to have to like just read books all the time and like wear brown like I, I just because that's like you see that in a lot of things and Fargo Robbie, you know, does Wolf of Wall Street. And then to be a serious actress, she becomes Tanya Harding. So she kind of plays into the like ugly, the serious thing. I mean, not that she was ugly in that, not that Tanya Harding's ugly, but again, this idea that it's only serious if it's not glamorous, if it's like plain, whatnot, like her career trajectory kind of had that route. So I thought maybe we're going to get by the end Barbie's like, cuts off all of her hair and just reads books all the time and like becomes an activist or something boring. She does wear a terrible beige blazer. That's that's sort well, she of goes a, to the, yeah at the end. Yeah. Yeah. We think she's going we think she's going to a job interview, but she's really just going to the appointment all women dread all year. All women. <laughs> but yeah, see that was a statement too. If people pointed out like that that kind of you know, because I mean the culture would say that men go to the gynecologist you know i mean at, at the end of the day there was not a they they didn't have the normal gender message didn't have the normal orientation type things you know all the characters were all the couples in the movie were men and women you know i mean the real life family even though it was confusing and it seemed like he was dead they were still married <laughs> not just dead just on duolingo all day <laughs> yeah and i mean that part was coherent like i really didn't I didn't really grasp that the America Ferreira character was the mom's daughter until like those pieces didn't come together immediately. And it was like, oh, OK, so the people from this flashback with the doll, that's also the corporate secretary. And then the girl that calls her a fascist at the school. And maybe you aren't supposed to know immediately that these were the same people. But I was kind of like, oh, OK, that's her mom. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think that confusion wasn't. I think that was sort of yeah I mean it almost would have made worse sense if if the mom had if the daughter had been the one like scribbling those things on the Barbies because yeah. like the mom is in awe of Barbie so it doesn't make sense that she's giving Barbie cellulite and stuff say in defense of that part 
I actually really liked that and really liked the realization. I mean, I don't care that she worked at Mattel. That for me did take me along to figure out like, oh, that was the secretary from Will Ferrell's office. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, that gives her, I guess, a platform to pitch ordinary Barbie at the end, which I thought was nice. Boring. And well, no, I don't know. I, I actually would defend that decision. But um, but the realization that, oh, it's not the young girl who uh, Margot Robbie was sent here to connect with. That's not who's been playing with her. And all these memories, you're looking through someone's eyes and it turns out it's the mother's eyes and you get to enter into this relationship between the mother and the daughter. To me, that was all very effective. Um, or I should say would have been very effective, except that we get about 10 minutes of it and then yeah. they just become basically onlookers for the rest of the movie, except for the weird speechifying and suddenly it becomes a movie about something else entirely, which is the Barbie and Ken thing, or really just the Ken thing, which I, I want to come back to and talk about. Um, but real quick, I wanted to also shout out, there's a really good review of this movie. And by good review, I mean, um, basically, this is, I wish I had seen the movie that this reviewer saw. So over, I think it's at the American Conservative, but it's Helen Andrews review mm -hmm. of this movie which I think is really fantastic from the point of view of what you're describing sounds great to me. She recommends this as a kind of double feature with uh, Kicking and Screaming, Noah Baumbach's first movie, which I love. I think that's a fantastic movie and sets this all up as Barbie as a kind of millennial mom movie. Um, and the most important scene of the movie that Gerwig refused to cut, even when the studio wanted her to, is my favorite scene in the movie. Helen uh, talks about this in the review, which is Barbie right when she gets to the real world sitting on, I think it's a bus stop bench, but some kind of bench with this old woman. She's like never seen an old woman before, right? Because in Barbie land, everyone is a Barbie doll and Barbie dolls don't get old. And she's just looking at this woman and she says how beautiful she is. And to me, that was, I think, the one moment in the movie where I actually like teared up a little. I was like, oh man, that's not the direction I thought this was going. But Margot Robbie's hero journey being a kind of journey of stepping away from this eternal youth. And the way Helen Andrews spells this out is it's sort of a millennial rejection of the boomer ideal of eternal youth, that the boomers were never willing to grow up. And the millennial thing is, or at least the Margot, the uh, Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach thing is get me out of this awful, unstable period of young adulthood and let me be settled, let me be mature, let me be an adult. Um, and I actually really like that and would have loved to have seen that movie. I just didn't really agree with Helen that that's the movie we all saw. Yeah, no, I, and as a millennial mom, <laughs> I think it was definitely marketed for women like me. And again, like the millennial mom character was just completely thrown away. And that was what was profoundly disappointing. I mean, and it's, what it's interesting, though, is it's true that millennial moms have the connection with Barbie. And the reason for that is because 12 year old girls don't. Barbie is a non-entity to them, and it's not because she's a symbol of the patriarchy. It's because there are other dolls that are more popular that they play with. They, I mean, Barbie has not. They're really more problematic. Been... Do they still have Bratz dolls? Yeah. So at first, like the 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 aughts, there were like the Bratz dolls, which were just terrible and depraved. And now there's and like for twelve year olds, they played with like these Monster High dolls, which were also terrible. There's so many more dolls out there that are more popular than Barbie and are a hundred times worse than Barbie. Just they look horrific. Please, wow. Barbie is so wholesome compared to these. 
So it's kind of funny that like the little girl's like, I don't play with Barbie. She's a symbol of the patriarchy. But like, really, what she probably would say is like, no, she is not as cool as Monster High, the zombie Barbie that I have. Um, So, you know, it's totally Mattel trying to kind of get the nostalgia going. So you remember, oh, Barbie was great. Barbie's so much better than the dolls on the shelf in any toy store. So, yeah, I think that they're trying to reclaim their own relevance and make a world in which the present day Barbie is more relevant than she is. Yeah. So um, a, a point against the movie that did occur to me is that if you were to go and watch the Olivia Wilde movie, Don't Worry, Darling, there's like a weird amount of similarities just in things that happen, like living in a cul-de-sac and you wake up and every day is perfect. And um, this sort of moving between the real world and the not real world by traveling really far up a hill, um, a car chase scene that makes no sense. And then also a sort of breakdown in the relationships between men and women with this sort of toxic masculinity thing happening. Yeah. I never actually saw that movie, but I had a great time following some of the uh, press uh, drama surrounding it. <laughs> I don't think that was real. I think that was how they promoted it. But yeah. And then just the last thing, the the main heroine character leaving the sort of simulation world at the end and you don't know what's going to happen. So, I mean, that was strange. Once I yeah. clicked, there's like so many weird similarities in that movie. It was like, we're 40 minutes into a conversation about Barbie, and it is miraculous to me that I don't think the name Ryan Gosling has been uttered yet. Uh, can we talk about Ken both as a character, as a performance, but then also about the plot of that? What uh, what did y'all think of Ryan Gosling in this movie? I mean, I think the plot of Ken is not important, but... <laughs> And, and and again, sort of superfluous to the movie that I wanted to see. But it, at the same time, it was the most entertaining part of the film. Hands down. Could not stop smiling. Could not stop laughing. He was just firing on all cylinders. Just awesome. Just great. Yeah. And I mean, Ken has no story. I mean, they they reference it in the movie. They're like, what does Ken do when he's on with Barbie? I don't know. You know where does Ken live? Beach. I don't... Yeah, Beach. Ken's day. <laughs> Ken's day is not a good day unless Barbie looks at him. Right. Well, I mean, that's true, though. Like, I'm you, yeah. you don't get Ken that's out. That's what they say. I mean, you don't just play with Ken. I, I assume. Yeah. Um, so, so all that weird. setup, I thought was very funny and very kind of smart about um, the way that Ken relates to the Barbie world and to little girls and so forth. Um, and I agree that I don't really care about the plot piece of Ken either. I think I just wish that they hadn't foregrounded any of that, that they had done to Ken what, you know, the objection so often, and it will be my objection in just a minute when we switch movies, um, is that in most movies, which are made for men, the female characters don't really have stories and are there as just kind of accessories to uh, their lead character, husbands or boyfriends or whatever and so forth. And I would have been fine leaving Ken in that position for this movie. But I agree with you, Zach, that I think that everyone feels so much pressure right now to do this weird patriarchy commentary thing in every piece of pop culture. And I, I think it's going to age terribly and it's going to feel so dated. Um, but in this movie, even if you wanted to do that, I just don't understand what she chose to do here. I, I seriously finished this movie and the last third of it is basically all about Ken and the Kens and the patriarchy and so forth. And I finish it with no idea what 
Greta and Noah are actually trying to say about men. Like, you've made this about male-female relationships. What are men supposed to walk away from this movie thinking? Uh, or what are women supposed to walk away from this movie thinking about men? Like, it's not just that I'm offended by it and the, like, belittling, not just of Ken, but which is kind of funny, honestly, in terms of uh, the Barbie world part of it. But also, as we've said, of the husband back in the real world on Duolingo trying to learn his wife's, I guess, native tongue uh, of Spanish. Um, and then there's the Will Ferrell boardroom of it all. Um, but Ken goes to this world, discovers that it's quote unquote a patriarchy, but then also can't get a job there. Um, and so is like shut down. But I mean... In a sense, and I don't know that this was intended, but they sort of mock that whole concept because, again, Ken can't win in the real world despite the patriarchy. And then what he brings back to Barbie land doesn't resemble the real world. Like, he, it's not a situation anywhere that that every woman is a is a waitress. You know, like, that isn't... Like, in, in a sense, and I don't think they meant to do this, but they did sort of show that that whole notion is a bit overblown, that, like, there's a currently functioning patriarchy. And the one that they depict in Barbie Land was never a reality. Like, there was not a situation where, like, every male was just out hopping around and every female just happened to have, like, a tray of cold drinks ready. So, I mean, and, and it was odd because, I mean, Ryan Gosling's performance is probably the one that would most likely win any sort of award. And that's funny in itself, just, the, like, the male character. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, again, and, and the movie would pass a sort of reverse Bechdel test which if they wanted to go full feminist they would have like intentionally not it would have made sure that you couldn't do that just because like that like the whole Bechdel thing is is like a huge like I think they would have made, been like see this, isn't it odd but um the Ken storyline what was cool is I mean it, it was a whole separate narrative like Barbie land is starts out as a matriarchy that's extremely fragile because it falls apart with one person finding out about patriarchy and they have the whole comment about, oh, there's no, this is like the indigenous with smallpox. There's no immunity to this. So like one person, uh, which was an interesting, interesting joke to, to throw in there. But yeah, I mean, I thought, first that of all, was that really is crazy. it was terrible, really problematic from the point of view, right, of the indigenous, but also like really problematic from what that's saying about women, like. If women, I mean, I guess that's an accusation against every woman in history until 1969 or something is what that was supposed to be. But, oh, if you don't know any better, if you don't have the critical theory about the patriarchy, you're just going to prefer to be a doting, um, like, pinup yeah. doll yeah. slash housewife yeah. as opposed to uh, justice on the Supreme Court of your land. Like, but what also, are we talking none, about? none of that makes sense in their given theory of the world that the dolls are what the little girls want them to be and how right. they're playing with. Them. So it doesn't make any sense that dolls just, you know, Ken coming as the American Prometheus, right, is going to give them this like knowledge that the dolls themselves are going to in, instead like become stereotypes for men in the real world. It just doesn't make any sense given the, the sort of very vague rules that they give. You know, why would that, why would they be susceptible? Why would they be susceptible to that? Like, because they're the whole, re their whole reason of existence is that little girls play with them. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But I mean, and I don't know if this was intended, but that sort of 
makes itself kind of a criticism of of matriarchy of of like just this idea that girl power can write everything and men can just be at the beach. And I mean, I, not that anyone's necessarily pushing that as their view, but like there is a whole, you know, we'd have no nuclear wars if, if women were in charge. And there's this whole concept of that, that at the end, the happy ending where they, they fix everything is when the two sexes um, basically agree to uh, respect each other, but also the Barbies aren't trying to extract any kind of like reparations from the Kins or any sort of punishment Like they forgive the Kins for their overreach and the Kins in turn. So, I mean, again, this sort of idea that it's this matriarchy that immediately crumbles from like one guy, they have no immunity to outside ideas. Um, so this naive thing. And then in the end, it really is just sort of a collaboration like of, of everybody coming together and not continually subjugating each other back and forth. So I, I don't know how much of that was intended, but the, the finished Barbie land is basically the, the come together narrative. And Nina Power talks about that in the, her compact review that like, in a sense, it's like for, she called it fourth wave feminism that men and women get along finally, kind of as as the you know the as what she says what Gerwig is proposing is that okay we've had we've had this we've had that like how about we you know how we get along? Yeah, that's another example to me of a review of the movie I wish I'd seen, but I do agree with it in terms of I think Gerwig and Baumbach actually have ideas about the relationship between the sexes that. I mean, obviously, morally, I would leave a lot for to be desired for me. But in terms of their kind of understanding of feminism at this point, I, I think I am inclined to their actual view a lot more than I'm inclined to what it felt like the view of the movie ended up being, which, again, I think is just a result of everything being too rushed and oversimplified and exaggerated, not just in like a supersized Barbie kind of way, but in a way that just made the commentary really, really difficult to keep track of. Like, I still am not clear on, I mean, I guess it's coherent to say men are simultaneously like pathetic and also in charge of everything. Um, but I don't know the, like, it seems like America Ferreira's character is just a whole lot more powerful, even in the real world that is quote unquote patriarchal than her husband in this movie um so or than ken when he tries to be something in the real world so i don't know the whole thing was a little bit half-baked to me um at that point okay um we have been going on barbie longer than i meant for us to go on barbie but that was a fun conversation about a pretty fun movie uh even if yeah, yeah. closing thoughts from from both of you and then we will shift gears um, and again, I don't know how this fits the rest of the story, but an interesting thing at the end when Barbie, again, spoiler, decides she's going to go to the real world and be a real person, when she starts to feel, she sees this montage and it's mostly of mothers and daughters and it's sort of depicting womanhood in, in the context of motherhood, which is not, yeah, which is not a given for a lot of commentaries like I thought that was you know again I don't know that this this movie wasn't trying to promote being a trad wife by any means but it, it certainly when it was looking at what the real world outside of Barbie land would be it, it talks about being a mom and a grandmother and growing old and these kind of things and and so you know because I mean Barbie's just solved um, misogyny in Barbie land and she, she decides to go out in the real world which is still I guess like partially a patriarchy so she's going to face all of that um, yeah. and the, 
the motivating factors are all these images of mothers and daughters. And so that was kind of touching. And again, not, I mean, not countercultural. It's kind of cheesy to say, but, but not necessarily what you would automatically expect. Like there's no boardroom scenes in that montage. Amanda, any closing thoughts on Barbie? Yeah, I agree. Um, and I would just say I wish that was the movie I saw by the time we got to that montage. And I really wish, like, we had Rhea, Pel- Rhea Perlman, excuse me, Rhea Perlman as Ruth Handler. And she brought this great, like, boomer grandma dynamic that, again, I guess she was probably greatest generation, but her boomer daughter uh, was the inspiration for Barbie. And I wish that dyna- dynamic was represented. I had wanted to see this movie with my mother, who did play with Barbies in the 60s, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because that really... Her generation really wasn't represented, um, and I kind of wish that sort of like three generation aspect of womanhood that should have been the heart of the movie, and it wasn't. And that's just sort of my my feel about it. Yep. All right. Well, let uh, let's leave Greta Gerwig's Barbie behind and move on to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. So. Oppenheimer obviously is a very different movie than Barbie in many ways, um, though actually there's some important commonalities uh, at the center too, which we'll talk about. But for context, obviously Christopher Nolan is a very well-known director. Um, his early stuff like Memento um, is a little more kind of experimental and uh, kind of indie independent theater stuff. He then jumps into the Dark Knight trilogy um, and sort of creates superhero movies, uh, at least our modern um, unrelenting uh, idea of superhero movies, um, concerning which I'm definitely on Team Martin Scorsese. Um, Please have these replace amusement parks instead of cinema. Um, But he does the Dark Knight trilogy and then since then has done a lot of... um, big idea um big idea plots with very very signature directorial style so things like inception things like dunkirk things like interstellar things like tenant um and oppenheimer is in a way i think the most serious subject that he's ever taken on certainly it's the most self-serious he's ever been about anything that he's taken on um and a lot of people are calling this the kind of peak, the capstone, the pinnacle of his career. Um, and so, again, I'd like to hear from both of you what you thought of this movie. Amanda, I'll start with you. Um, Oppenheimer, yay or nay? Um, I liked this movie more than I thought I would. Um, I kind of came in like it's a three-hour movie. I, I'm at the point in my life, I do not watch three-hour movies. I'm asleep. I, I do not have the energy for three hours. And yes, I think he could have cut half of this movie and it would have been a stronger film. I didn't really need to. See. I know he's trying to do a biopic kind of um, of of Oppenheimer. And so he, you know, he says, oh, it's necessary for him to be, you know, to sh- show his early affinities, his studies in Europe, his commie men- pixie dream girl affair and all of this nonsense Ooh. which is just i think so superfluous and seems so vapid against the main what i thought should have been the main storyline which was obviously the creation of the atomic bomb and the trinity test and once he does get there it is fantastic and i thought that sequence of um the the trinity test the first test of the atom bomb is moving it's terrifying 
um, awesome in the way, you know, awesome is, you know, traditionally used, full of awe. Uh, and sitting in the movie theater, um, you know, with the sound, really, really a fantastic cinematic experience. Um, I mean, I thought the performances were fine, um, you know, good. Robert Downey Jr. was great, even though I thought his character could have been cut completely. I did not need to have an hour of Senate, uh, you know, testimony for, you know, Truman, Secretary of Commerce after watching the A-bomb be dropped. Like, really, it, it kind of I didn't really care about the sort of um you know, uh, hearing he had about his security clearance, like, I don't know, it's it to me, that was it was fine, but to seem like a different. Movie. Um, but yeah, and I mean, I think we're going to talk about this, but the two female characters are just like, he shouldn't have even included them if he was going to make. Oh, are we going to talk make about him, it? If you were, if he didn't pass the Bechdel test, you know, and usually, and usually, and I, I, don't... I mean, I thought it was funny. This is why I put a letterbox like the two female characters I... don't like each other because they're in love with the same man. And they never Nolan was so I mean, real for this. This is, I think that the problem was like, don't even bother. Just don't even bother if that's what you're going to do. And, and and Christopher Nolan, sister-in-law, Lisa Joy, is a very talented screenwriter. Her and Christopher Nolan's brother created Westworld, which in the first season was very good. She created, she was a writer for Pushing Daisies. Like she's a very talented screenwriter. Why not slide the script over to your sister-in-law and say, do these characters make you laugh when you read them? You know, Emily Blunt's character is introduced as a biologist. And then in the next sentence, she asks uh, Oppenheimer, oh, yeah, you do like quantum physics. That sounds so hard and confusing. Can you explain it to me? Don't the Kens, don't the Kens and Barbie literally have a number where they're like, I want to explain this to you. And like the Godfather, right? Oh, yeah. That's just like the whole like. You know, I, after seeing Barbie, like that made it that much more funny. But like, come on, really? And she has this interesting background. She's married like three times. She comes from money. She's like alcoholic, but we don't know why. She's a biologist. We don't know what she studied. Like, really? Like the, this? You you gave all her exposition in thirty seconds, and the rest she's gonna drink the rest of the movie. She's gonna have one kind of good scene, and that's it. And and that to me is just it's just laughable. I mean, I and I have pretty low standards. I love Dunkirk, I love Master and Commander. There's like not a single female, as far as I know, in those movies. It's they're entertaining movies. They're telling the story. They're just trying to tell. It's a historical story. But like, come on. Uh, and then there was like a woman involved in like the the Manhattan Project. Like we don't that, know that. She... Honestly, that felt like they added that after they were done. Yeah, they were like, I was oh, like, no, is she a real have... person? We need... We need Does like one girl that's name? not feuding with the other girls. Does she have a name? Is she real? Was she real? Like, I don't know. Like, she doesn't have a name. She's never. Positionally, is another. She, but the actual role she has in terms of what she does is, again, giving an opportunity for Oppenheimer to mansplain something. So, anyway, yeah, I, I agree completely about Nolan's wife problem that I think carries across yeah. his movies, but was so so distracting to me in this yeah one. and i i mean i guess just to, just to close i mean my probably the more important beef that i have with this movie which you know i did enjoy more than i thought is the sort of moral dilemma about the bomb is it's it's brought up multiple times but every time it's just sort of brushed away like no one really like dives into that discussion which should really be you know what this movie is about not you know his you know 
how cool his cool security how clearance. cool his American commie friends are and how yeah exactly his security clearance you know there was there were very significant voices within the scientific community at the time who were against the the creation of the bomb and also the use of the bomb that were all sort of brushed aside like he has his that friend who please god forgive me i do not remember his name who when he asked yep. to be part of the manhattan project he says i do not want 300 years of physics to culminate in a weapon of mass destruction which is such a cogent argument and then Killian Murphy's like, well, we'd be using it against the Nazis. And he's like, oh, okay, that's fine. It's like, obviously, wouldn't wouldn't that guy have had the, you know, wouldn't he have known since they were at war with the Nazis that he would be used against the Nazis? And, you know, and and, and so on and so forth, you know, after VE Day, all the Manhattan Project scientists are like, okay, Hitler's dead. Why do we need the bomb? Like, let's just have this. We've developed it. It's here. Like, we don't need to use it. And then Oppenheimer's like, yeah, you know, we're just going to use it against the Japanese. And they're like, oh, OK, oh, that's fine. Like no one has this discussion, um, you know, Rami Malek and, you know, whatever he was doing in Chicago with the other guy who I don't know who he was like. That was actually a real team of scientists who created the petition against the bomb. And um, he, he sort of brushes them aside. And apparently in real life, Oppenheimer prevented any of his Los Alamos scientists from even seeing that petition because he didn't want them to sign it. And that's not on screen. That's not on screen. Um, and one my one last thing, and I'll step off the soapbox, is um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, he does a Trinity test in New Mexico, which we're told is uninhabited, which is, was not true. There were people who right. lived there. Um, they are called the Downwinders. You can look it up on the National Park Service website. They are people who, um, they were ranchers, families, um, whose entire livelihoods were destroyed, who died horrifically. Um, and they have still not been recognized by Congress. They have not gotten any compensation from the American government. And, you know, Nolan filmed in New Mexico and he didn't even mention them. That to me is almost criminal. And I'm getting emotional about it because I think it's a very real human issue that bothers yep. me when you're getting this like big man biopic. Couldn't even mention the downwinders. So, again, very... Um, it, it was a good film in certain respects, very severely disappointing in other respects. So I'll, I'm sorry, I'll I'll step down from the soapbox now. No, you're great. Zach, what about you? I think, again, you might be more positive on this than, than Amanda. Well, I... No, I might be I wrong about I, that, I, actually. What did you think about I this I liked movie? it. I mean, I was excited. I, I saw them both on the same day. I saw Oppenheimer, then I saw Barbie. Um, I will say with Oppenheimer, it was, it was three hours long. I probably spent three hours and 20 minutes engaging with this movie like I was excited I watched it I you know I didn't I didn't really come away with a lot to think about other than you know that was cool to watch I did think that the time jumps were sort of annoying there were things that didn't you had to sit and try to piece it back together maybe it was intentional I don't sure the the casting was distracting. There were issues, and then they did make this whole fuss about not using CGI. But they one hundred percent had CGI aging in that last scene, and the characters looked like Snapchat filters. And I just oh, I yeah. don't know, like the budget they're working with <laughs> to not have just used prosthetics. I, it's just odd. If I'm president, so I'm gonna use an executive order, and they have to reshoot the last scene with prosthetics. But vote for Zach. I, it was just. I mean, I'm like, you really do the atomic bomb without. CGI, but then you you can't just throw on some prosthetics to make your characters old. Um, but I I mean, 
I do. I, I really didn't know that about the Downwinders, which I guess is is almost more of an in, indictment of the movie. If I watched it and paid attention and, and hadn't heard that term before, um, so just as uninformed as before I saw it. But I I do think it. I mean, it ends with him having this vision of blowing up the whole world. I don't I don't necessarily think that it it leaves you wondering if if the atomic bomb is bad or if 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 Oppenheimer is aware that he created something bad. And, and the scene with Truman. Um, you know, where Oppenheimer's kind of eaten alive by the whole thing and, and Truman's like, well, blah, 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 and I don't want to see this again. And so, I mean, I I did think that it was sort of clearly, you know, anti-atomic bomb, but, you know, I maybe missed something there. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, part of the issue with this movie because i i agree that like the most important and interesting moral stakes surrounding the bomb are not in this movie at all which so the way that the morality is framed is all in terms of are we going to destroy ourselves um is this going to destroy the whole world have we created something that in the future will become something really really bad like not the atomic bomb but the hydrogen bomb the next time around or something and is never about the actual morality of what we did um, to cities full of innocent people in Japan. And obviously, I mean, I'm a Catholic. Everyone, I presume, uh, listening to this is on the same page about the intrinsic immorality of what we did to the Japanese at the end of World War II. Um, but I guess I, I am sensitive to the response to that on Nolan's part that all of these things deserve to have movies made about them. I chose to make a movie about this, like a movie. This movie already was about too many things. So I can understand the pushback that I can't handle everything. I can only handle the angle on this I've chosen to take, which he says is supposed to be this very subjective angle from the perspective of J. Robert Oppenheimer. My issue with this is not um, the movies that I wish he had made instead or the things I wish he'd incorporated into this one, but my issue is with the movie he chose to make because this entire movie is about this man and Killian Murphy's performance is great, but I have to believe that this character was deliberately underwritten, that this is someone who's deliberately hollow because if he's not deliberately hollow in his depiction, then Nolan is even worse than I thought he was. Um, back to that in a sec. Um, and if that's the decision, if you've got basically what I heard someone else describe as a character study without a character at the middle of it, um, I just don't understand why that was the approach, why that's the, um, the three hours you chose to give us. Because... There's kind of no there there at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, so in terms of my review, I mean, I went into this very low expectations, to be honest. I do not like Christopher Nolan. Um, I, I feel like for me, Nolan is the kind of director where everyone has one of his movies that they quite like um, or have fond memories of liking. And it's the movie that happened to come out when they were like at the end of high school. And that's because his movies are these very like, quote unquote big idea things but in the sort of half-baked way that you think about when you're 17 or something so for me that's the prestige 
And that's the movie I saw with friends a couple times in theaters and had conversations about afterward in terms of physics and the morality and whatever. And as I've gotten older and seen what Nolan's continued to do, but also revisited his older stuff, for me, it's just like incredibly simplistic in terms of the actual ideas, but also really, really convoluted and full of itself. Um, and he has these directorial tricks that some people have said, like, I don't even like Christopher Nolan. And I think Oppenheimer was great. He finally used these in a way that made sense to me with the story he's telling. I had just the opposite reaction. I thought the contradictions were so heightened here in terms of the bag of tricks that he uses as a director. Once this is brought to bear on an incredibly important real world subject, and it's not inceptioning a dream into someone's mind, and it's not, I don't really understand what happened in Interstellar, but traveling across space and time to save the world in some fashion, um, and is instead, you know, uh, according to Nolan, a story about the most important man who's ever lived, uh, about which I have some notes. But if that's what this is going to be, I don't think that Nolan's directorial stuff works at all. The cross-cutting here between timelines is so unnecessarily confusing and exhausting and just covers up for the fact that if you actually put this story in order, it's really quite boring. It's lazy. I mean, the Trinity the, test the is phenomenal. Dumping the timelines is lazy, and they're all doing it, and they do it on TV now, and it's lazy. I yeah. think like, they can be done well, and I mean, I this was whatever, but it's it's lazy. Agree. The... the the fourth timeline, too, oh, I guess there's more than four, but the, the latest timeline, the timeline that we spend all of our time with in the third hour of the movie with the Senate confirmation hearings for Robert Downey Jr., which I'm very glad that Robert Downey Jr. is acting again um, and has I didn't even realize it was him for the longest. I, I'm really bad about not reading, like, the type, like, not really going into a movie knowing everyone is going to be in it, and it finally was like, wait a minute. Like, it, it just didn't immediately click, so that was kind of fun. I was not ready for, again, for, for Drake and Josh to be in charge of pushing the button. Like, I can't. I, I'm never going to be or, okay or with Josh that. Or Josh Hartnett being in charge of a radiation lab. Like, come on. Uh, although, you know what? That was the only thing that kept me going were the ridiculous celebrity cameos. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, it's Rami Malek. Like, I, I could not tell you what his name was. I, I couldn't tell you, like, anything else about him. You know, but I could remember, you know, Rami Malek and Josh Hartnett and Matt Dink. Like that's that was that was effective because it's almost like Nolan knows these are all these guys the all blend guys. together after a while. The the most ridiculous moment for me that completely took me out of it because I was trying to remember who this actor was, but so the guy who runs the um, tribunal or whatever um, for the security clearance, uh, I guess it's a an appeal appellate hearing thing at that point um is the president from scandal if either of you watched that show a decade ago no but he, he has that kind of like fed face but he's interrogating this was what was so distracting to me like talk about mismatch energy the guy he's interrogating is i think the creepiest actor in the entire world and for me the baggage with that is that he plays the copycat child kidnapper in prisoners the Denis Villeneuve movie with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman and Paul Dano. And anyway, it's a very disturbing movie that I watched a few months ago on a flight across the Atlantic and then slept for the other six hours of the flight and had a terrible nightmare. Uh, but he is such a creepy character in that movie. And in Oppenheimer, he plays Bowden, I think is the character's name. 
and yeah just super creepy wrong energy for the movie and distracted me like nobody's business josh hartnett was great though i have to say <laughs> he is doing great and i'm happy for him i'm so happy for him. yeah <laughs> all means but uh yeah i don't know the uh the time jumping thing the last timeline needing to be in black and white the whole robert downey jr timeline needing to be in black and white no one is saying that that's because finally the perspective's different and you're not in the subjective point of view of Oppenheimer anymore because he's not there and now it's objective, so it's black and white or something. To me, the only reason they did that is because I think they showed this to test audiences who could not figure out what was going on at all. Yes. And so he had to give one clue as to what timeline you were in. So he switches to black and white film. Yes, I, I need it. I'm, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. No, I agree. But to me, that's a flaw with how he's arranged this. You need it as a crutch um, because the movie doesn't work. Otherwise, it's too confusing. But why would the latest timeline be in the old timey kind of anyway? I don't know. That part makes no sense to me. Sorry. Yeah. If, if you're already going to go out of his perspective, then it makes sort of the omissions in other parts of the story seem more glaring. You know what I mean? Like, and I and and to be clear, I think my my objection to the sort of brushing over of the moral quandaries at the time is a narrative problem, rather than like yeah. a, it, it's a problem within the universe of this own film, not necessarily within you know the broader universe, um, because again, he there he's showing that he can show you different people's perspectives, and he can and I'm sure Oppenheimer had very very in depth discussions with his colleagues about things like that, but we don't get to see that. Um, which is kind of unsatisfying. It's just unsatisfying as a viewer because you want to kind of see how he grapples with these things. And I think Oppenheimer is just too much of a cipher here. The character is too much of a cipher here. Uh, again, I, I think that the, you know, the film itself, I didn't, I did not hate. I liked it. Um, but, you know, there, there were some issues with it that. When I think point taken, the, 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 the movie, I think does make you question and have to kind of confront like the invention of the bomb and what that means for the rest of of human history, you know, the rest of time. You know, there's no going back and it's a completely different world. It doesn't force you to grapple with what was done to, for instance, the people in New Mexico. I mean, didn't really know anything about that. And then, or the, or of course the Japanese. And I obviously know about the Japanese, but the movie doesn't really make you think too much about that. And it obviously doesn't make you think about New Mexico. And so I, I get the point that it, it makes you question like the broader nature of the bomb, but you're not talking about like, what about the people killed that day? Yeah. And I agree with Amanda too, that this is a problem within the narrative. This isn't like, I remember on the movie draft episode last summer, I talked about the complicated relationship I have with a movie like After Sunset, uh, which is a movie I absolutely love, but then you step back from the movie and outside the context of the movie, you then have to do the moral appraisal of, but this story that works so well within the movie is actually convincing me that I should be rooting for these two people to commit adultery. Um, or, you know, I mean, there's a ton of movies that you could throw out like this, like uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Call Me By Your Name or any number of things that within the world of the movie... I think hang together very, very well and are effectively made. And then you need to step back and say, okay, but we should have some major, major problems with this. And the fact that this convinces us that this is okay within the world of the movie. But that's not the issue for me with either Oppenheimer or Barbie, actually. 
my my patriarchy issues with the Barbie plot is not that I have uh, like a different moral point of view on this or something, but it's just that narratively it becomes dysfunctional. And likewise here, I agree with you, Amanda, that the things that are not here um, just lead to what is here seeming kind of, to me, like, I don't get what the stakes are. Like, no one thinks this movie has the highest stakes or, like, reports the highest stakes in the history of humanity. Yeah. And I'm just not really won over by that. The movie doesn't... It's not a high stakes. No, stake I mean, it. it's certainly what he's telling investors, but I do Barbie think is that no one believes his own... But it is. Barbie is ta- Barbie touches on explosive issues that are very relevant. And, I mean, no offense, but they didn't do that enough. Like, I, I mean, it, Barbie is the more serious movie. I think, too, like, yeah, I mean, I think that my problem is the characters don't behave rationally. Again, the guy who's like, I don't want to be involved in creating a weapon of mass destruction. And the response is, well, you know, we're just going to use it against bad guys. Like, that doesn't respond to that moral issue. Though that's um, kind you know, of very it, American. Like, are you against the terrorists it, or it, not? Like, Sure, but, I, you know, the guy's already coming with, with that position. You know, yeah. it doesn't seem to assuage his concerns and and similarly yeah. every single time someone has those concerns like again the manhattan project scientists are like you know why why would we ever want to use it now we can show people that we have it or we can warn people and say we have this weapon like why do we have to use it and the response is well you know we want to end the war and you don't necessarily get to hear you know the you know people who were involved in that decision making process who were against the decision you know, it just seems to me like they're missing that piece. Like in the, I think there's a scene where Oppenheimer's sitting with a bunch of generals, I think with Stimson and maybe a couple other people, but you don't get to see, I think it's like Admiral Leahy, who, who I believe was the chief of staff, who was the biggest uh, opponent of dropping the bomb. And he has many, you know, strategic considerations that it wasn't necessary. We didn't need to do this, but like he's not in that scene. So why would you? That's, I guess, my problem is he's already putting the pieces on the board. He's already letting you into the room, but he's not populating it with enough of who were there at the time. Like, how could you make it? Instead, he's populating it with like a chalk outline of a character who then never gets built in. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me is I think it does work in the sense of like we not we're actually not sure how troubled he is like and and the accusation of the tribunal at the end that says you would do it you would do it again in an instant and I think that's right I think it's right even though he sees the he sees the he knows he first of all he knows exactly what's going to happen to the people when the when the bomb drops he says oh well I was I was a bit astonished that there were more people that died than I thought and and the you know the significant radiation effects in long term, like they didn't really quite know, but you know, it, he, 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 he knew, um, you know, he did, he, you shouldn't you see the shock on his face when he watches the newsreel of the victims. But, you know, I think it's true that he probably would have done it all over again, even though he says, I don't want to build the H bomb because it's going to be worse. Like, cause yeah, I yeah, think there is something that the critiques are like, you know, you had your moment in the sun. Yeah, it yeah. depicts him as wanting to be famous. And like when you lose your security clearance, that's going to be a big hit to your fame. Like I thought that was clear that that was the character yeah. in the movie. He, yeah. He wanted the probably consulting gigs and just the notoriety of having that. And so when you take the security clearance away, those like those are vanities. Like that's to me, that was the character in the movie. 
Yeah, and I think the the H-bomb guy was right to say, you know, while you wanted to be the father of your bomb, you're preventing me from being, you know, the father of the H-bomb. Like there is some yep. ego that has to do it with uh, as well as, you know, I'm sure they're not as collaborative sort of as the Kins. They're not as supportive of each other as the, exactly. they don't have the energy. <laughs> He's certainly not the American Prometheus we were promised. <laughs> Can I share the funniest meta take on this movie I've Please. heard? I'm sure that this is not true, but someone suggested that. So what is true, of course, is that this is a movie about like a misunderstood genius and his, uh, quest to achieve greatness um despite the fact that the world doesn't understand how brilliant and powerful he is and so forth and it is true i think certainly that that's a stand-in for nolan that is nolan um communicating the way he feels as the great cinematic genius that he believes himself to be that's all fine but in terms of mapping the rest of the movie one-to-one on to nolan's career it's hilarious to me that someone suggested, I'm now forgetting where I read this, Vanity Fair or something, um, someone suggested that Nolan is Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb is the Dark Knight series and everything that's happened since then in nuclear war is the MCU exploding, destroying cinema. And this is Nolan grappling with, coming to terms with, was it worth it? Even though what I did, I think was kind of good, it's now responsible for the destruction of all good things and the rest of Hollywood and the I blah, support blah, blah, that. Which I think is absolutely BP hysterical. serious Batman was the atomic bomb. That was his bomb. I, I, li- I like memed myself into liking The Dark Knight because everyone else liked it, but I did not like Batman Begins. I didn't see Dark Knight until it had been out. I didn't see it until The Dark Knight Rises came out, and I just didn't vibe with it. But everyone else did, so I made myself start to really like it. But I liked it at the time a lot more than I think I am capable of liking it now, just because of what's happened in the. It was deprived of the time. We we chose misery in the 2010s. We we ran towards misery. In the aughts, in in the in the first, yeah, because I was in college. Uh, you know, in the aughts. And I remember in our philosophy class, it was like an Aristotle class, there was a guy we called Dark Knight Guy because literally <laughs> every single when we would discuss Aristotle, he all he would like relate it to the Dark Knight in some way. And it's like, this is your fault, Christopher Nolan. I know 10 of those guys. So, yeah, it was Dark Knight Guy. But, you know, I'm sure he's doing good. No, today. see, the Tim Burton the Batman, they... The, Batman, Batmans, they uh they hold up better. They're they're way more like he had better insight into humanity than than non. Yeah, I I pretty much just like Christian Bale in those movies and, and nothing else. I don't think I would watch them again. Um, although I did like Robert Pattinson and I liked emo Batman. I thought that was, one was fine. It was fresh. I I, liked I didn't it. mind it. Was, it. it was and there fun. were some big it scenes pretty... that kind of had a '90s feel to me, like the big yeah, they blow up the whole town, but. You know, I don't know. Anyway, Colin Farrell, tangent upon tangent, but I did like I it. Heard it was good, but honestly, I yeah, I couldn't even get myself to watch it. I'm just so over the whole superhero. So, do you think either of these movies but are going to win okay. a bunch of awards? I don't know. I think this definitely should win like some sound awards. I mean, in terms I can't, of performances, I can't support maybe? giving a sound award to Christopher Nolan under any ever. I know, but it was so good. I I don't see movies in the theater very often, and that was like definitely made it me think i should see more movies in a theater i didn't think there would be a jump scare and it, it got me the person that blew out of her chair oh yeah like she yeah went it was good but anything i'll say about that is that at least that wasn't just bs filmmaking that actually is the difference right between the speed of yeah. light and the speed of sound so that like actually would happen yeah. 
Um, and I thought that was very well done. But in terms of the award race, the thing about this, right, that's so complicated is, I mean, I'm sure everyone uh, who's made it an hour and 24 minutes into a movie pod uh, is aware of the news coming out of the Screen Actors Guild right now. But this strike may delay all of the competitors for Barbie and Oppenheimer. So these may end up having a ton of nominations and even victories by the time the Academy Awards come around, depending on how long it takes for the actors to reach a deal with all of the streaming and AI yeah. stuff. Are they are they um, going to release uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? I, I think the answer is yes. Um, but there's so many things right now that seem like it's just June's up, up in, in the air, air. because mm-hmm. even if right, it's, that's what I was going to say for the sound design stuff and all that other below the line stuff is the last time there was a Dune movie at the Oscars, it won basically all of that. Uh, and Dune 2 could be a return of the king kind of thing in terms of we're waiting on the finale to give you the recognition yeah. that uh, has accumulated for this, whatever. But I, I mean, I it may be that there is an answer to this question that someone who actually knows the industry better than I do could look up right now and find out um, whether Dune is committed to come out or not. But if it doesn't, um, because these actors, even if they filmed everything already, but if these movie stars can't be there on the promotional tours, right. then the studios can't make money off of these, and it makes more sense for them right. to hold them. And they have to run. So for we'll days. see what happens. I mean, I would honestly love to see Margot Robbie get nominated uh, for Barbie. I think that what she did is just absolutely incredible. Um, and I'd be very happy. I don't like Ryan Gosling. But somehow we went this long without me mentioning this, but I... Yeah, so I really dislike this guy, and you're supposed to want to punch Ken a lot of the time, and I really wanted to punch Ryan Gosling. Um, but what he does in this movie is impossible to argue with. It's incredible. So yeah, if he ran and support him instead of leads, um, which I think he should, um, I don't think that's category fraud. I just I, I just hope they don't nominate it for writing. I think the script was... God, oh, screenplay, awful, yeah. Awful, awful. But I think they will because everyone loves kind of, you know, Greta Gerwin. Do you know what won best screenplay last year at the Oscars? Best uh, adapted screenplay, I think, because I'm pretty sure this was a book first. Yeah, it was. Was Women Talking, which is not even a movie. Um, but that's okay. So I would not be surprised if there is a lot of political... Yeah, I... Yeah, the costume piece of it's very strong. Though again, costumes if Dune were... comes out, the Dune costume thing is yeah. But I feel like the costumes in Barbie are just perfect. It's just really, really, really well done. I think they'll definitely get it. I think Dune, I think, was nominated for costumes last time, and they're fine. But the the Barbie costumes are just really the, superb. The strike will impact some things because they obviously they right they have to have their seven days of theatrical release to be eligible, and so if they don't do that. Um, and they hold it, then right. That's going to mean we're out of movies. And they have they have run press that Dune is in question. And that could be like a fear tactic. And there's been a lot of like interference on the strike, but they've at least floated that Dune isn't ready without like the strike ending. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That'll be interesting. Are there any performance Oscars that y'all would want to see come out of Oppenheimer? You know, I think Robert Downey Jr. would have been good. I, as much as I think his whole plot life should have been cut, Give him I a think nom. he did a re- really, really good job. And, you know, I, I don't know, Killian Murphy too. I think he did, like, he apparently lost a lot of weight. And who knew that Killian Murphy had, had weight to lose? But 
I mean, the man gave it his all, and I don't think any of the faults of the movie are his. I think he does. Yeah, I agree. Fantastic job. Um, I, I, you know, I hope Emily Blunt isn't nominated. Just, I mean, I think she's a fantastic actress, and I feel for her. But like, this character should not be recognized. It's, it's just such a joke, and the strong moments. She's great, though. I really like her. Yeah. Yeah. Her performance, her strong performance, like only highlights how terrible this character was. When sometimes you don't want them to encourage something, it's like I don't want to encourage. Terrible in the sense it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a missed opportunity, and I think that character could have been so much more interesting on the screen than they wrote for her. Absolutely, the thirty seconds she gets to actually act. I think might be my favorite 30 seconds of the movie, even though from a narrative perspective, the entire thing is actually quite melodramatic and stupid. Like this is the appeal of a security clearance hearing where your wife has been there the entire time. And the emotional tension is like, is she going to throw you under the bus? Of course not. Um, But she she's incredible in that scene. It's the only moment in the movie, right, where you have a female character who actually is allowed to do anything. Yeah. Florence Pugh, who is also an incredible actress. I think th- both these women are among my favorite women on screen today. Um, Florence Pugh in this movie is just embarrassing uh, how little she's allowed to do and how much of the representation of an idea she is and not Terrible. in a kind of knowing way. It, I mean, and obviously there's a couple um, very graphic, but not even in context, especially yeah. uh, tempting scenes because he is multitasking by translating the original Sanskrit of the Bhagavad Gita and then in a conference room with ah. his wife looking on while you're like mixing two scenes together for no reason just because Nolan can. So that to me was the ultimate like Nolan can't get out of his own that way. Was so, it, was, it was like I cringed in the theater. I cringed thinking about it. It's just it's really embarrassing. And I... <laughs> I do like, though, Emily Blunt when she's testifying. She's like, well, you know, we were American communists who are so much cooler than, you know, international commies. Like, we just were interested in cool American issues and not like, you know, genocide or like shooting the czar's children or whatever. <laughs> like, the, right. All of the communists are just so hilariously like, oh, look, they're wearing turtlenecks. They're so cool. They're having cocktails, you know, it's, it's just, it's very like, it's like a, like, again, like a 17 year old boy was like imagining cool commie parties in the thirties and like, you know, their child cries once. They're like, we'll just give them to the communists. <laughs> that was just yeah. so to, bizarre. And weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To me, it's kind of the level of discourse of like, uh, the kind of college age left cats on Twitter of like your understanding of Marx leaves a little bit to be desired. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I love he's like I love he's like I read all three volumes of Das Kapital in German, and that's not what in that, the original that's German. Not what it's about and she, yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, possession, not ownership. None of us have actually read it. We're just here for the booze, like, and the cool, you know, international component. Yeah, it's just yeah, it, it's so it's so laughable that yeah. This may be more for the director's comp, but um, the summer movies with nude scenes, uh, some of them, they really did advance the plot and were hilarious or just like whatever. But this one, it was like, why is this happening? Like, is this necessary? I'm relieved that they CGI'd it out of the international release. Yeah, we oh. don't have time to get into no 
And so on as it is, this I was podcast, like, no hard feelings. But, uh, I was like, I don't think that I'm just totally against these types of scenes. I mean, morally, but like I, I you know, as plot points, but it was, yeah, it was not, I didn't, I didn't love it. It was and, like Game of Thrones level, like, let's get a prostitute in here to explain some, you know, weird yeah. plot point. It was like the classic cringe. And I've enjoyed yeah, the weird no deflecting thanks. that to even acknowledge that is somehow offensive to the victims of the atomic bomb because shouldn't you be more offended by the bomb than about the nude scene and it's like yeah. I mean that's unrelated I'm allowed to be very offended by both. I mean I think it is kind of it's an I think it's also an indictment of like Oppenheimer's character as portrayed in this film that he is like more worried about unionizing the radiation lab than you know dropping a bomb on a city of civilians like he seems to have more more like stress about the unionization of the Berkeley radiation lab than he does about I mean I know that's wiping that's out cities but yeah. that's kind of what the movie shows according to the movie it is that's he spends more time stressing about the radiation lab right yeah. and the oh my gosh the stupid cyanide apple Adam and Eve serpent thing he did that is in just... real life apparently so Oppenheimer actually did the cyanide apple thing and he didn't go get the apple i think he was actually caught and almost prosecuted and his father got him off for it wow. so yeah i i just read that today because i googled that that really happened and yeah and that wasn't how they did the movie well i think after an hour and 34 minutes of discussing the barbenheimer we should probably bring this to a close but for a kind of lighter and fun summer episode i thank you very very much for being here um and i hope we were able to also talk about some things that are more serious and interesting with these films too if you listen to this entire episode and have not seen either of these movies first of all you are certifiably insane um and second of all I don't really care whether you check them out. I was going to say, yeah, go see them. And actually, I think the reviews we've given today mostly uh, militate against that counsel. But no, uh, you know, follow your own discretion. We'll end it there. Um, and I will say, I mean, as someone who loves movies, I am happy that everyone is seeing these and you can actually have a conversation again about something, right? Like that's the the exciting piece about Barbenheimer being an event is finally movies are enough at the center of cultures where you can assume that enough people around you have a common touchstone that unlike in the streaming world where you're all going home at night and watching totally different things and then never able to share anything and talk about it this is at least a common text for us to kind of gloss together this summer which is kind of fun okay thanks very much both to zach babry and to amanda for coming on the show today Thanks to Joe Barnes, who uh, wanted to be here with us and unfortunately was called away by work. Um, but as Joe has told us repeatedly over the past couple of weeks since he saw Barbie, he is literally Ken. So thanks to Joe Barnes, literally Ken, for producing this episode. Thanks also to Jonathan Colbreth for our music today. Thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Josias podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash Josias to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Use at Justitium. And find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. Thank you.